pursue your purpose, speak your truth, deal with adult bullies, cope with failure, live beyond fear, establish values, set boundaries, move past trauma. These are all the themes in my Amazon bestseller, The Smart Girls Handbook. Tribers get in close. For 15 years, I have been searching for a book that didn't exist. So I am thrilled to share that I decided to write it. The Smart Girls Handbook is available to buy now from wherever you get your books and also in Canada, the United States of America, New Zealand and Australia. Everything we do is a response to something you have asked for and girl, have you been begging me for a book for years? Who is it for you? The reviews are outstanding. The press has been phenomenal and I am overwhelmed by the amazing support it has had already. This isn't my book, but our book. I realised after my talks around the world, women would be queuing for hours just to ask me one question. I didn't want them to just walk away, but to have a tangible source to have forever. And this is it. This is refreshing, never before read content that will inspire, motivate, empower, inform and entertain you. It's full of my personal development tips that have got me living as my most authentic and highest self, literally glowing from within. My most vulnerable moments and hilarious stories that will resonate with you. The Smart Girls Handbook is a celebration of womanhood and the book missing from your library. So grab your copy today, tag me on Instagram at smartgirltribe and I will send you an exclusive gift just to say thank you. 15 million adults have social anxiety. It can in fact begin around age 13. 36% of those struggling experience symptoms for 10 or more years before seeking help. Given that autumn is now here and we are heading back to the office after summer and not to mention Halloween, Thanksgiving, Veterans Day, Christmas and lots of other social gatherings in between, I thought there really was no better time than now to call in the social anxiety expert to help explain it and teach you how to ease and cope with it. Jenna and I also discuss how you can get comfortable with the idea of being rejected and or abandoned, how you can prepare mentally for an interview or social gathering if you do have social anxiety, and Jenna also shares a routine you can implement today if you suffer from social anxiety. Hi Jenna, thank you for coming on to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast today. Can you just explain to our audience what social anxiety actually is? Yes, so we all have anxiety, right? We all have anxiety, um, especially in in a variety of situations, whether that's social, um, whether it comes to relationships, you know, we all have anxiety. Anxiety is actually very functional. If we did not have anxiety or the capacity to experience or feel anxiety, we wouldn't look twice before we cross the street. We wouldn't um, show up or prepare for that job interview. So anxiety is a good thing. It just becomes a little bit too much sometimes, right? Especially when it's out of proportion to the actual threat. Um, So anxiety is, again, something that we all feel, but when it becomes too much, um, we definitely look for things like distress and impairment. Um, So when it comes to distress, just how distressing this issue of anxiety, specifically social anxiety is, um, how you know, much it contributes to low mood and, um, and especially in what ways it impacts their day-to-day functioning, right? So um, there are definitely lots of people who aren't able to have the social life that they would want because of the social anxiety. There are lots of people who 
feel like they're held back in the professional world in, in a lot of ways because of their social anxiety. So it really comes down to the point of distress and impairment um, where we identify, is this problematic or is this something that we could kind of live with and might be a little bit normal? So what is the difference between having anxiety and having an anxiety disorder? So it would come back again to that that distress and impairment piece. So when we, as clinicians, we use what we call um, the DSM. Uh, Right now it's the DSM-5, I believe. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. So that's kind of our recipe book, if you will. That's kind of our instruction manual that we as clinicians have to use as far as diagnostic criteria goes. Um, So when it comes to social anxiety, when it comes to generalized anxiety disorder, when it comes to um, obsessive compulsive disorder or other kind of related uh, disorders, like that, um, we really, it really does boil down to distress and impairment. So um, the amount of anxiety or the expressions of anxiety that someone might have in one scenario, it might look like the complete, it might look like the complete same for somebody else. But if someone is feeling really distressed because of that anxiety, it just feels more intense. Um, and again, that impairment in their day-to-day functioning. So um, essentially, if you feel like it's a problem, then it could be a problem. Um, if you feel like it's getting in the way of things and you want help for it, then that's something that we as a clinician, as a therapist, we would walk you through and you know, how distressing is this for you? How impairing is this for you? Can social anxiety be something that we pick up from our parents? I can imagine if we grow up witnessing our parents struggling a lot in social environments, then it's potentially something we pick up too. So it's a, it's complicated, but yes. So we see, as we do with a lot of mental health conditions, um, especially anxiety-related conditions, um, we do see that it's very much a nature and nurture type of situation. So there's usually some genetic predisposition, meaning that it does, you know, those genes and that kind of vulnerability does exist within your lineage. Usually um, if it exists like within your direct family members, so like mom and dad or siblings, um, grandparents, then you are more likely to exhibit that as um, potential issues down the line. Um, But that's not to say that if it does exist in your family that you are bound 100% to have it, right? Because we can imagine that our environments and what we are modeled from our family members, from our loved ones, that plays such an important role. Um, so that's why we see some trajectory and some patterns exist as far as mental health conditions go within the family. And that's why sometimes it breaks off, you know, mom and dad might be really anxious, but the children aren't. Um, so they, those children in that situation, they may still have the genetic predisposition for that. Um, but based off of their environment, you know, their upbringing and a bunch of other just environmental factors, they don't exhibit those traits. So um, modeling is definitely super key. Um, you can imagine if you already do have that genetic underpinning um, that makes you susceptible and vulnerable to um, exhibiting anxiety or social anxiety, and you're modeled that by, say, your family members, um, you know, that's going to be kind of a, a nurturing situation where, where your environment is nurturing that genetic predisposition. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a nature and nurture type of disorder when it comes to social anxiety. I have read that children who have been bullied or rejected can be more prone to social anxiety. So what would you advise anyone, Jenna, who is dealing with social anxiety as a result of either being bullied and or rejected? 
I mean, and that makes sense, right? Like, you know, you kind of get burned by the iron and you don't really want to go near the iron anymore. Um, and, and that is definitely something that happens. Sometimes we get anxious about things that haven't happened yet. And they're kind of imagined scenarios. Sometimes we get anxious because of things that have happened to us in the past. And so, you know, someone who's been bullied or someone who's been made fun of, of course, their brain is going to latch onto that. Our brains, even as kiddos, I would say, especially as kiddos, our brains are wired to keep us safe, not necessarily socially functioning, not necessarily happy, but our brains are wired to keep us safe. And so when we're in those honestly traumatic situations as kids and we're bullied or made fun of in a public way, that's really shameful and makes us feel really awful um, and embarrassed. And as though society slash people are threatening, um, we give our brain that message or rather we're given that message by society, right? That people are dangerous, that if I go to school, um, I'm going to be made fun of that, you know, other people aren't safe even if kids aren't socially, even if they're not consciously aware that those are the messages that their brains are getting, that's kind of the message that their brains are getting when they're being bullied, that people aren't safe. Um, you know, going to school, for instance, isn't safe. And so, yeah, they're going to, you know, respond in a very anxious way the next time that they go to school or are around other people. So it's very common after being bullied or after being made fun of in a, in a way that's really shameful to feel anxious the next time. Um, but it's really important in the anxiety cycle and especially with social anxiety, it's really important to continue to do the things that you were doing anyway. So, you know, it's really common and totally makes sense why someone would no longer want to go to school because they've been bullied, right? Um, but unfortunately, let's say that someone's been bullied and then they don't go to school the next day that's gonna temporarily make them feel better because it's like, oh, thank goodness. Like I just didn't have it in me to go to school today. I just didn't wanna be bullied again. I didn't wanna feel that anxiety again. But unfortunately, the next day that they have to go to school, they're gonna be even more anxious than had they just continued to go um, because that avoidance not going to school, for example, it temporarily makes that person feel better, but it just reinforces this concept that I can't tolerate going to school. If I go to school, something bad is going to happen. If I'm around those people, it's going to be threatening and something bad is going to happen. Um, and so as an exposure therapist, as someone who does exposure and response prevention, which is the gold standard treatment for OCD, anxiety, and related conditions, including social anxiety, um, you know, obviously we want to make sure that everyone is safe, right? Especially in this um, day and age when such awful things are happening, um, especially here in the United States when it comes to bullying and shootings and all those awful things. Um, as a parent and also as a therapist, I would want to make sure that everyone's safe, that the school is aware and that, you know, things are actually being taken care of in a way that's above and beyond, like just what I can do for that child in therapy. But as far as helping that child manage their anxiety, we would want to work through exposures. We would want to find challenging but manageable things that that person can do. Maybe it's, you know, saying hi to a comfort person in, in class. Maybe it's saying hi to someone who's a little bit outside of their comfort zone. Maybe it is, you know, trying to partner with someone who they're not super comfortable with. Uh, during a group project or something like that, right? So it's all about trying to find small ways to get the child just a little bit outside of their comfort zone um, so that we can start to break that cycle of anxiety and making the anxiety worse by avoiding.
And what about any adult who is suffering from social anxiety because they are carrying around this past trauma with them? What would you say to them, Jenna? I would definitely, if it if it's more trauma, if there are some trauma responses there, when I think of trauma, I think of things like nightmares. I think of things like flashbacks. Um, that is something that exposure and response prevention therapy can help. But if it's more, you know, into the trauma world, I would recommend the evidence-based practice for that, which is EMDR. Um, so I would definitely recommend EMDR more so for the trauma piece, but there's still, if social anxiety is involved, there's going to have to be some element of exposure and response prevention, right? So um, let's say that an adult had a history of being bullied when they were a child, but now they're having a really hard time sending emails at work. They need to send emails as part of their job. They need to be able to communicate with the department, so on and so forth, but they find themselves avoiding sending emails or being really, really like rereading their emails to make sure that it sounds perfect. Um, I would work with that person on, you know, let's maybe just read that email one time instead of two or three or four times. Let's work on within five minutes of getting an email, you need to respond. Um, rather than postponing it and rather than avoiding it. So um, major point here is that regardless of the past, regardless of the history or how old someone is, there has to be an element of exposure and response prevention, which is essentially finding small but manageable and challenging ways to step gradually more and more outside of your comfort zone, doing the scary things and facing your fears um, while reducing avoidance. So reducing avoidance of things like happy hour, right? Like I, I'm sure I could imagine if someone had a history of being bullied, they probably want to go out and do all these things. They probably want social connection, but they're probably, and rightfully so, they're terrified. Um, so they probably avoid hanging out with people. They might avoid social interaction. Um, but if that's something that they want and that they value and that anxiety is holding them back from, I would work with that person on, you know, what are some small, challenging, but still manageable ways that we could get you to, maybe you don't just go right to happy hour because maybe that's too anxiety provoking, but can you, you know, send a text message outside of work to one of your coworkers? Um, if once you get used to sending that text message, can you maybe, um, you know, maybe on social media, maybe you can follow someone on social media and start a conversation with a coworker on social media, right? So we find small and challenging, more and more gradual ways of challenging themselves in social situations to help them realize that your fears aren't as catastrophic as you think they are, that they're not as probable as you think they are, and that even if it does happen, you can tolerate it and you can handle it. And that, um, you don't have to be 100% sure that you're never going to be bullied again. You don't have to be 100% sure that, you know, everyone likes you in order to live a fulfilling life. Being the expert, how can someone get comfortable with the idea of being rejected or abandoned? So it all kind of comes back to putting themselves in situations where that might happen, right? Because if someone is holding on to or has this fear um, of being abandoned or being rejected, chances are they're probably avoiding those opportunities, right? They're probably avoiding things like intimate relationships or they're avoiding, um, you know, being vulnerable in certain situations. If someone wants to overcome that as their fear, 
I would approach it the same way as someone who wants to overcome their fear of dogs or overcome their fear of dirty bathrooms. I would encourage, you know, what are some ways that, what are some ways that this fear or these fears are getting in the way of your life? And what are some small, challenging, but still manageable steps outside of your comfort zone that we can start to take right now? Um, I think a lot of times people, they, they want, they wait to do the scary thing until they feel confident but that's not going to happen. Right. So, you know, I do, I do things all the time, scared. I do things all the time, not feeling confident, but you don't, you, you can't wait to do something scary until you feel confident because it's, it's scary. You only get confidence after you do the scary things and after you push yourself. Right. So, um, you know, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be comfortable to put yourself in those opportunities where you should be vulnerable or where you're expected to, um, you know, have those connections. You have to put yourself in those situations where you're, you might be abandoned, where you might be X, Y, and Z. Um, and then give yourself the opportunity to learn that, again, your fears aren't as catastrophic as you think, your fears aren't as probable as you think, and that even if you are abandoned, even if you do get hurt, you can handle it and you can tolerate it. Because the alternative is that you just continue to do the same patterns that you've been doing. And chances are, if they're listening to this podcast, it's probably not working out for them, right? So, um, you know, it's scary, but it's it's important to face the fears and to to live a life that you value without fear holding you back. People who have perhaps a condition that draws attention to them, I have read that that can also lead to extreme social anxiety. So what would you say, Jenna, to anyone in that situation? So yeah, so it totally, it totally makes sense, right? Why if someone is self-conscious about their appearance, um, you know, whether that's their body size or shape, or if it's their nose or whatever it might be, um, it's very possible that that could be the contributor or a contributor to why they have, you know, those anxiety provoking thoughts or those anxious thoughts or those, those urges to avoid, right? Um, I've worked with plenty of people, um, whether it was eating disorders or eating disordered behavior or body dysmorphia or body dissatisfaction kind of in general, um, you know, social anxiety around summertime, right? Social anxiety around being at the pool, having to be in a bathing suit. Um, it's just a vulnerable feeling for people. And again, it's, if anxiety is involved, it's always going to come back down to exposure and response prevention in some form or fashion. So I know I feel like I'm kind of beating a dead horse here, but if there's anxiety involved, whether it's because of your body or because of you've been bullied in the past or because your dad and your mom have it and you don't know why the heck you feel so anxious all the time. Um, it all comes down to what are the ways, what are the things that I'm avoiding and what small but manageable steps can I start taking today to, to no longer avoid those things as much as I'm currently avoiding them. I have noticed that some people will very flippantly say, I have social anxiety. So how can those who are truly struggling with social anxiety express how they are feeling? Because I have noticed this with anxiety as well. People will say, that gives me so much anxiety, which is almost dismissing anxiety disorders. So for someone who is truly struggling with social anxiety, how can they express themselves? How can they really explain what it is to others. 
So if someone is in a position where they're struggling with anxiety or social anxiety, um, we obviously experience that so much too with obsessive compulsive disorder, which is kind of my most exciting area of expertise. Um, you know, people are constantly saying like, oh yeah, I'm so OCD or, or oh my gosh, whatever. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I think people are for the most part pretty well-intentioned. I think that they just don't know any differently, but it is important to you know, if you're in that position and, and you do want to be taken more seriously and you don't want it to be interpreted as though you're just flippant about it and it is a serious condition that you're struggling with, I might encourage that person to say something along the lines of like, actually, that's like really, really hard for me. Um, I really struggle with situations like that. This is a big trigger for me. It just evokes a lot of intense emotion um, and I'm working through it, but it's just, it's something that is, is hard harder for me than it, than it might come off to someone who doesn't understand. Um, so using words like, like trigger or, you know, big emotions, this is really difficult for me. Um, you know, I, I, those, those words and that kind of language might help someone really draw the point home that, that it is a big struggle, that it isn't just them being anxious. Like this is a big issue for them that they're working on. Um, but that it's difficult and it, that the person is taking it seriously. Considering, how so many people will either just say that they have social anxiety or will perhaps self-diagnose themselves with social anxiety. How many people do you genuinely believe, Jenna, struggle with this? I'm always of the opinion that way more people are struggling out there with all different kinds of mental health issues um, than we lead on to believe, right? I think we all kind of walk around thinking and having this, uh, misunderstanding that like, for the most part, people are good. I think for the most part, people are not very good. I think for the most part, like if we were to actually like open up the curtain behind what's going on in someone's mind, and if we could actually like see truly what goes on behind closed doors, we would realize that I think the exception is people who are happy. The exception is people who are like super content and, you know, wouldn't meet criteria for any kind of disorder. You know, they're not super distressed or have their daily day-to-day -day functioning kind of being impacted. Um, but I think with the pandemic too, like we've all been forced into, you know, except for maybe the past year when things have gotten improved and better, we were all isolated. We were all just like in our own little huts and our own little corners with our own little families. And, and some of us completely by ourselves, we were completely isolated for a very, very long time. Um, and anytime anything is new, it's anxiety provoking, right? Um, and so it, it's, it's anxiety provoking in a way because anything that's new, our brain pays attention to, right? Like, and the way that our brains work when we're wired for survival is any new information, our brains, whether we're conscious of it or not, our brains evaluate that stimuli and it sorts out for us on our behalf. Is this something that I need to tend to? Is this potentially threatening or is this fine? That lawnmower has been going on outside for so long, I've kind of habituated to it, right? My brain has understood that that's not threatening. I don't need to tune my attention into that. But when there's a new noise, a new stimuli, my brain is like, okay, what is that? Let me interpret that. And it all goes on in the background. We don't know. Um, but I mean, to my point, we were all isolated for a very long time. Then when we are all kind of out in the world again, like socializing was new for us. I remember when I um, was on maternity leave for three months when I had my uh, son, he's four. Um, 
I didn't really socialize with anybody for three months other than it was in the winter. Um, I was home uh, with my son and with my husband. When I went back to work, I felt anxious socially because I felt like I had to relearn how to socialize all over again. Like it was just a new situation. Um, and so I feel like, yeah, to the point, uh, I feel like we all, we all have something going on or at least for the most part. So I don't know if I answered your question, but when it comes to stats, I, I feel like it's all more than what it actually is saying on the websites or on these organizational websites. It's it's always more than than what we're being told. I love that answer. That was very refreshing. And for anyone who is struggling with social anxiety, how can they prepare mentally for a party or social gathering? So when it comes to things that are important to us, we're probably going to be a little bit anxious, right? Um, there's something that is, I think, really pivotal in the understanding of anxiety. Um, it, it's called the Yerkes-Dodson curve. Um, so it's basically, it's almost called, I think it's almost called the Yerkes-Dodson law now because it's like such a well-established relationship that it's pretty much accepted as law in the psychology world. Um, so the Yerkes-Dodson curve or Yerkes-Dodson law, it is the relationship between performance and anxiety. Also synonymous, anxiety synonymous with stress or arousal, um, basically like how much you care about something, right? Um, and this is, a reliable relationship with interviews, with relationships, with tests in school. Um, but essentially it's like a bell curve, right? So at the bottom of both axes, and you could Google it, I'm sure, Yerkes Dodson curve, maybe we can throw a link to a graph about it in, in your show notes or something. Um, but the, the visual, it's in my head right now, and hopefully you can all look it up. But the idea of the Yerkes-Dodson law is that at low levels of anxiety, we have low performance. Everyone wants no anxiety, right? It's uncomfortable. We don't like anxiety. We want no anxiety. But the problem with that is that if we're not anxious, we're not going to care. If we're not anxious about a job interview, if we're not a little bit anxious about a party, we might go and act a fool, <laughs> right? Like we won't prepare. We won't go, um, you know, to that job place, that employment, you know, website and do some research in the, in the background of the company and be prepared with really good questions to answer or have answered. Um, you know, if we're not a little bit anxious about the party and we don't care whatsoever, what other people think of us, we'll, we'll just go, maybe we would just go naked, right. And just be completely ridiculous. Right. Um, so the idea is that if we have no or low anxiety, chances are we're, we don't care, we're lackadaisical, we're careless, and, and we can be embarrassing at that point. Um, but on the other hand, with really, really high levels of anxiety, we also have low performance. So this is when it becomes disordered, right? So when we're so anxious that we don't go to the party because it's like, oh my gosh, all those people, it's going to freak me out. What am I going to say? What if I get stuck in this conversation or in this situation oh whatever I'm too anxious about it I'm just going to stay home well that's low performance when it comes to going to a party right when you just avoid it and you don't go at all um but what we find is that at moderate levels of anxiety you have the best performance and so you can imagine if you're let's take the example of a test right if you're not anxious at all before an exam chances are you're not going to study for it right 
if you're not anxious about it, you don't care, um, you don't care about your GPA or whatever, you don't care about your grades, you're probably not going to study. Why would you? Because you don't care. Um, likewise, if you're super, super, super anxious about that exam, you're probably going to put it off. You're probably going to be worried about um, all the awful things that could happen. You're not going to be able to focus on actually studying. But if you have a moderate level of anxiety about that situation, you're alert enough to be able to take in that information, but you're also centered enough and not too pressured, not too stressed, not too aroused that you can, you know, be functionally anxious. And so before a party, um, I would acknowledge, right? Like you're going to be anxious to expect yourself to not have anxiety is not only not helpful, but it's setting you up for failure. You can't help how you feel. Um, so I would just let that happen. Like it's going to be a little bit anxiety provoking, doing something new, doing something that is a little bit anxiety provoking for me. And that's great. Um, if it wasn't anxiety provoking for you, then it would, it would be something that you don't care about. So I would roll with that. I would not have any wild expectations to not have anxiety, but I would just be very mindful of like, these are my goals. I'm going to go to the party. I'm not going to go and hide out in the bathroom just because I'm anxious. I have this person that I can talk to. Here's my plan. And I'm not going to avoid, right? Um, so that would be my suggestion. If someone is setting off for perhaps a Halloween party or a Christmas party and they reach the front door and they're thinking, I have taken on all of this advice, yet I don't want to do this. I'm going to walk away. I really, really don't want to do this. The social anxiety is too much. What Are there any positive affirmations they can tell themselves to get them through that door? So that's going to happen. It's going to happen where, you know, you build yourself up, you build yourself up. And, you know, last minute there, you are probably going to start to doubt yourself, right? Um, that happens. It happens to the best of us. I would say something if I was in that situation, I would say something like, I'm going. This, this work party is really important to me. I would try to remind myself of why I wanted to go. I would steer away from any self-assurance or anything like, oh, it's going to be fine. Everything is going to be fine. Because the problem with anxiety and with social anxiety in particular is that we are anxious about things that haven't happened yet. We're anxious normally about like what that person is going to say or what they're going to think or what we might say. And so we can, and we often do, right? We often try to like logic our way out of these anxiety provoking situations, but it doesn't work because we have wild imaginations. And when anxiety lives in your imagination, when you're anxious about things that haven't happened yet, no matter what logic you present, no matter what positive affirmation or what self-assuring statement you use, your wildly imaginative self is always going to come back with one more doubt. But what if it's not fine? What if your safe person isn't there? What if, th what if this happens or what if there's always going to be one more what if? And so I would caution people against using things like self-assurance statements or um, phrases like, it's fine, it's fine. I would, I would focus on your why. I would focus on why you want to go to the party in the first place and remind your, like accept the anxiety, acknowledge that it's there, but redirect your attention into going to the work party and what it is that you want to do versus allowing your brain to talk you out of it. What about if someone is about to go for an interview? Would your advice be the same there, Jenna? Absolutely. So 
Um, again, I would almost encourage that person to kind of visualize that your keys Dodson curve, right? Like it's okay to feel anxious. I can expect to feel anxious. A job interview is a big deal, especially one that is so meaningful to me. Um, so I would tell myself that I would remind myself too, that anxiety is not dangerous. It's just uncomfortable. I can go into this job interview feeling uncomfortable. Um, you know, I wouldn't try to think about all the positive ways that it could work out because like I said, your doubt and your anxiety is just going to have one more, but what if to follow that up with one more awful scenario to follow that up with. And you're just going to be in this argumentative cycle about it. I would just accept the fact that we don't know. And we're not going to know 100% what this outcome is. All we can control is putting one step in front of the other and getting our way into that interview room. And again, remembering your why, remembering your outcome picture of kind of what is so important to you. Why is this interview so important to you? Doing whatever you can to talk your way into going into that interview versus finding whatever sneaky ways you can to talk your way out of going into that interview. You're going to be uncomfortable, right? I, I feel like, again, this is a great example of when people like, I don't want to go into that job interview or I don't want to go into that party until I feel confident or until I feel comfortable. You're going to be holding your breath then for a very long time. And unfortunately, if you don't go to the party, if you don't go to the job interview, consciously or not, what you're telling your brain is if you leave, for instance, and if you avoid, if you don't go to that party and if you don't go to the job interview, consciously or not, what you're telling your brain is good thing you didn't go to that job interview, good thing you didn't go to that party because otherwise you wouldn't have been able to handle it. And that's no way to set you up for success to go to the next party. That's no way to set you up for success to go to the next job interview. So you have to be really conscious and aware of what your behaviors are telling your brain because your brain is always picking up on your behaviors. If you leave when you're anxious from that job interview or you're anxious so you avoid going to that work party, you are giving your brain the message that you can't tolerate that in the future and it's just going to be that much harder for you in the future. So it's gonna be hard now, but do whatever you can to make it so that it's not hard the next time. If you keep challenging yourself, you'll be giving your brain the alternative message, which is you can handle things, your worst fear did not come true. Your worst fear was not as catastrophic as you thought. It's not as probable as you thought. And even if you did go to the work party and someone maybe looked at you funny, you'll live, you can handle it. And that's a really good learning experience too. Even if you go to the job interview and you say something silly or you stumble over your words or you don't get the job, you will live, the world will spin on. And that's also really good learning for you to have. If you just avoid and you walk away because you're anxious, you're, you're learning that you can't handle that. And that's really, really sad. What about if you are the person hosting the party or gathering? Are there any signs to suggest that somebody is struggling with social anxiety? Um, I mean, you know, I think people who, I think people who have social anxiety, sometimes it's obvious, you know, sometimes they're probably either not there or they're probably really well-functioning right? So um, they may be doing more of these like safety behaviors, what we call kind of rituals or compulsions. Um, they are probably doing most of them in their head. So things like reviewing the conversation after they have shared in conversation, they're probably uh, trying to like mentally prepare for conversation. And again, I feel like we all do that a little bit, but when we start to do it really repetitively and in a way that feels urgent and we start to rely on those behaviors um, and it, it, 
it can just snowball. It can snowball into social anxiety, you know, a diagnosable form of that to where it really is distressing and really impactful in your everyday life. So um, I would say other than the obvious of like either A, not showing up and B, like maybe just hanging out by themselves, maybe like escaping to the bathroom when they don't actually have to go to the bathroom. Um, I would actually say probably more often, these are the people who probably look totally functional. They're probably talking with people and, you know, overtly, it probably looks like they're just a normal, regular part of the crowd, but they're probably doing a lot of um, unobservable behaviors like mental compulsions or mental safety behaviors in their brain. Probably those are the people who like function perfectly well during the party, but after the party, when they're home, they're running through all the things that they said wrong, or, you know, they're running through to make sure they didn't say anything offensive or that this was taken the right way. These are also the people who are going to three weeks before the party be trying to plan and prepare for what they're going to say in this situation or how this person is going to perceive them. And it's, but when they're at the party, they probably look like anybody else. Is there anything you can do as a host to create an environment to help someone struggling with anxiety feel at ease? I would just continue because again, we don't want to provide that like, hey, everything's great. You have nothing to be anxious about because it's going to feel good for like two seconds. And then the person with anxiety is going to have that doubt that like, oh, well, they just said that because they're being nice or whatever, right? We're just going to keep doubting it. So the only way that we can correct these anxious themes in our brains is if we challenge them through experience. We can only really challenge these anxious patterns through experience. And by experience, I mean exposure and response prevention, putting yourself in these anxiety provoking situations, which are the exposures, the response prevention piece is not doing those safety behaviors or kind of rituals or compulsions that you would normally do, like preparing for the conversation before the conversation, um, reviewing the conversation after the conversation. Um, so as the host, like I wouldn't want, if, if a client of mine was struggling with social anxiety, and they went to a work event or a party or whatever as an exposure, I wouldn't want the host to do anything different because we can't rely as a, as a person with anxiety, right? Like we're only in charge of ourselves. We cannot expect the people around us to bend to our will. Obviously people can be sensitive, right? Like I would not want that host to be like, Hey, here's Jenna. She has social anxiety. Everybody go and hang out with her and go say hi. Like, that's not what I'm saying either. I think there's a way to be sensitive, but I like, I want my, if this was my client, I would want my client to be able to tolerate like their own emotions and be able to sit with their own discomfort as it comes up um, and not have to rely on someone else to like change their plans or do anything different because of my anxiety, because that's just, that's never going to happen. Right. Like what's going to happen the next time that like, if, if, I, if that was my client, and somehow that host, somehow if I arranged for that host, like, hey, my client is really anxious right now. Can you make sure that you hang out with them to make them feel more comfortable? That might be great for that one scenario, but what about the next scenario? What about the next work party? I want them to learn that they don't need X, Y, and Z. They don't need a safe person, that they don't need the host of the party to like hook them up, right? I want them to learn that they can do this on their own. And that regardless of what happens, we'll figure it out together. 
Is there a routine someone with anxiety or social anxiety can implement in their everyday life to help overcome their social anxiety? My best response to that would be, what would be the things that you would want to do if anxiety wasn't part of the picture, right? So like, what would your morning be like if anxiety wasn't part of the equation? What would it look like for you to to start your work day? What would it look like for you in school? Like, I would literally almost like encourage that person to break down various aspects of their day and just get very visual about it, just get very specific. What would that person's if anxiety was off the table, like you could just live a life totally unabridged and like unaffected by anxiety and you could do whatever it is that you wanted to do. What would that look like? What would morning look like? What would your afternoon look like? How would you spend your free time? Who are the people that you would hang out with if anybody, what would your nighttime routine be? Um, and I would work with that person to slowly and slowly start to try to do more of those things because treatment is all about, um, not, getting rid of the anxiety first, right? Like it's doing it scared. It's doing the things in a small and challenging and manageable way, Um, but doing it scared. We always say like act with uncertainty, right? So like act with uncertainty, go to the party feeling unsure, go to the party, go to the work interview feeling unsure. Don't, you know, wait until you feel sure and then go because you're going to be holding your breath forever. Um, But yeah, it's all about like bringing that anxiety with you and and essentially like no longer allowing that anxiety to dictate what you do and don't do. Right. And then, and then eventually I think the icing on the cake, the, the beneficial byproduct of that is that you no longer feel anxious, but that's not the intention. Right. So I always tell the people that I work with, if your intention is to get rid of your anxiety rather than accept it and learn a way to live your life with it in the background, um, then we're doing it wrong, right? Like we can't have the the intention of wanting to get rid of versus accept. By accepting and by doing these value-driven activities with anxiety, the beneficial byproduct is usually that anxiety goes down, but we can't do it backwards, right? And I think that's often what, what people try to do. Is there an antidote to social anxiety? exposure and response prevention, gradually exposing yourself to your fears in a way that's challenging, but manageable, reducing those safety behaviors. So if you have a safe person, if you, um, you know, these rituals or compulsions or safety behaviors that we tend to do to make ourselves feel better, um, reducing those things and reducing avoidance. So I would encourage people best place to start, the antidote would be to identify what are the things that you've been avoiding and what are some small, challenging, but manageable ways that you can start to approach those things versus avoid. Then what is your favorite quote, Jenna, or the mantra you live by? Probably do it scared. I don't know where that originated from, um, but it really just encompasses so much, right? Like do it, do it scared. Like you can like I said, we, we often wait to feel confident before we do the scary thing, but mm-hmm. you get confidence after you do the scary thing. You have to have courage, right? And courage, the definition of courage is to do the thing when you're scared, right? Doing it because it's scary, because you know that it's good for you. So um, do it scared. Um, kind of just re- reinforcing this idea that you can be courageous. Confidence waits for you on the other side of doing the difficult thing. It's not going to happen before. 
I love that, Jenna. And then what books or podcasts on this subject would you recommend to our audience, please? So um, the podcast that comes to mind, honestly, is it's it's more about obsessive compulsive disorder, but it's all the same. Um, it's just different kind of manifestations, but the function and the cycle and the treatment for it is the same. So everything that I've said here applies directly to OCD treatment and to other anxiety disorders and vice versa. Um, so the, honestly, the highest quality podcast that I would recommend if someone's resonating with the information that we've talked about would be the OCD stories by Stuart Ralph. Um, but I also have a podcast. It's called all the hard things. Um, it's a little bit more broad about just exposure and response prevention in general and about anxiety in general, um, versus, you know, really, uh, you know, specified OCD stories and the OCD stories podcast with Stuart Ralph. But um, yeah, those are the two that come to mind. Um, oh my gosh, books. Um, there are a couple, probably my favorite series of books would be from Dr. Reed Wilson, R-E-I-D Wilson. Um, so Dr. Reed Wilson, uh, he's kind of a pioneer in the field of fear slash anxiety slash worry slash panic. Um, so again, I'm sure so many people can really resonate with those words, fear, anxiety, panic, worry. Um, so he has such great information. Um, he has a wonderfully resourced um, YouTube channel as well. So for people who are more visual, um, that's a really great resource as well. So Dr. Reed Wilson, again, just on YouTube, um, but he does have several books about these topics, just how to tolerate fear, anxiety, panic, and worry. Um, so I would start definitely with Dr. Reed Wilson. Thank you so much, Jenna, for coming on to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It was Thank you for listening to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. I am your host, Scarlett B. Clark, award-winning founder and CEO of Smart Girl Tribe, the UK's number one female empowerment organization, host of this top-rated podcast, the Smart Girl Tribe podcast, and author. You are my community, my family, so come and follow along for more female empowerment and personal development in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or on Twitter or Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe.